God sent his only son that we might live in and through him. But whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, passing from death to life as we love one another, not being led astray, but remaining in his light where there is no darkness at all. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So let us love one another without fear, for perfect love drives out fear. And if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Believe in the name of his Son and love one another. Dear children, let us not only love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You know, it's a big weekend, what with the Olympics and with the Super Bowl and with Valentine's Day and the fact that you would carve out an hour or so of your weekend to join us here. Uh, I am so grateful that you are here. Those of you in the building, thank you for being here. Those of you joining us in our online campus, so glad that you are with us every single week. And speaking of the Olympics, I was just told out on the, on the patio there that today is the first time in the Olympics that they're having a, the event called the Monobob which is what you get to experience for the next 40 minutes anyway. So here we go. It's all good. And we've been in this series looking at this sermon that was written from a pastor to his former congregation. It's a, a book in the Bible called First John. We'll continue on in that. Today I'm really going to cover three verses, which is kind of about the max I can do in this series. Uh, so if you want to turn, we'll be in First John chapter 2. Before we get to that, I was thinking about it, if there was a survey taken or a poll taken across all demographic lines of you know age and social economic status or geographic uh, you know wherever they live across all lines in the United States and you ask people what are the three we'll do three or five most famous or familiar Bible verses and it can be from themselves or just assuming what what it is what what are the you know Christians non-Christians churchgoers non -church, I mean everybody just what and I think if you ask that question we did a poll like that did a survey there would be some verses that would be repeated you would hear frequently I think you would hear you know that that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth that would be one that you would hear a lot it's first verse in the Bible it's it's kind of a familiar one especially if you're raised in church or Sunday school as a little kid you were probably taught that verse Others might say, well, you know, a, a verse that, that you would hear a, a whole lot would be something along the lines of, you know, our Father who art in heaven. Because if you were raised in church, and, and maybe if you had a Catholic upbringing, you said that a lot or, or whatever, but, but the, the first verse of the Lord's Prayer. And if you weren't raised in church, maybe one of the verses that would come up a lot would be, judge not. Because that's one that, that is, loves to be, it's a great verse. Or, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And I think... If you just ask people, they would come up with verses that aren't even in the Bible. I think people would respond with, you know, my favorite Bible verse is, when God closes a door, he always opens a window. Yeah, that was Pinterest, not the Bible. Or someone might say, well, my favorite one is, God will never give you more than you can handle. Show me where you find that one in the Bible. Or, or you know, or, or maybe it's, it's God helps those who help themselves. Or, or Jesus take the wheel. Or, or, or whatever it might be. My fear would be, I know you are, but what am I? But if you ask people, what are the most famous, what are the most uh, familiar Bible verses? There is, I think, one that would be on almost everybody's list. And what I find fascinating about this one 
is that it was a phrase that Jesus spoke, but it was not when he was at the temple teaching the masses. It was not when he was on the Sermon on the Mount where there were thousands of people. It's not when he was feeding the 5,000. This phrase, this little verse that is so familiar, so powerful, so well-known, was actually spoken in a one-on-one secret conversation at night with an individual who was religious, part of the, the uh, Jewish ruling council and a Pharisee, religious, but not really sure about this Jesus, curious, however, and a little bit afraid. So he comes to him at night and has this conversation one-on-one, and it's implied that not even the disciples were there. These words were spoken to one person, not to thousands. And in this conversation, Jesus was talking to this man who's spiritually curious about him and using stuff that was hard for this guy to understand that that about you have to have a second birth, which was mind-boggling to him and his mother's womb and all the, okay. And and then Jesus turns the corner and and throws him back to to Numbers 21 where where Moses held up a staff with a, a serpent on it and people were saved. And then he talks about how the son of man must be lifted up and bring about eternal life and all that. And in the midst of this conversation where Nicodemus is trying to figure all this out, Jesus drops this bombshell, not to thousands, not to a Billy Graham crusade filled with a stadium filled with thousands and thousands of people. To one individual, he says these now so familiar words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Words very familiar to us. Words that we've always heard in big congregations and crowds and crusades and, and, and revival meetings, spoken one-on-one. And I wonder in that moment, when Jesus says that God sent his only son, if Nicodemus had any clue that the one that was saying these profound words to him was the one he was talking about. And the following verse is not as familiar, but to me, just as powerful as it reiterates and kind of reverses the the truth of this. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Here's this beautiful picture of a heavenly father who loves this world, loves this world so much that he's not wanting to condemn it, loves it so much that he would provide, that he would send an atoning sacrifice as we looked at a few weeks ago, that he would save the world. That's why he would send his son. What also is curious to me is that this profound verse was not recorded in the other three gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke never mention this. Only John. Why? I'm not entirely sure. John, the apostle of love. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He alone records that God so loved the world. Now that John is the same one who would write this document that we're studying. First John, and will be, as I said, in chapter 2. And he writes not only the gospel of John, but these letters at the end of the New Testament. First, second, third John. And in this first John document... He writes to this congregation trying to set them straight on some things where they have been taught differently and wrong. And in that, he makes this statement, which is sometimes misunderstood and sometimes confusing. 1 John 2, verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Can I wait a second, John? In your gospel, 
You said that God so loved the world, he doesn't condemn the world, he sent his son to save the world, that God loves the world. But in this letter, you say that we are not to love the world or anything in the world. God loves the world, but we can't love the world. And in fact, if we do love the world, then the love of the Father that loves the world is not the love in us. That's confusing. Where are we going with this? Are we supposed to love the world like the Father does, or are we supposed to not love the world like you're saying here? Well, let me read the three verses that I want us to cover today, and then we'll kind of pull this thing apart. Back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, does not come from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. He doesn't have a whole lot of good things to say about the world in this short three verses. And as I was kind of wrestling with these two, I thought, my first thought was, well, it's probably two different Greek words that are both translated world. This happens in other, other settings where there's Greek, different Greek words that we just have one word for. So I pulled out the commentaries and looked in the, the, you know, the concordance and no, it's the same word, cosmos. It's the same word, world. So what is that? And I think the truth is this, is that the world, as it's spoken of in these two passages, is the world in two different senses. On one hand, we are to love the world with great intensity, with deep passion, we are to love the world. And in a different sense, we are to hate and avoid the world with a, every bit as much intensity and passion. And how does that play out? Well, let's look at the world that, that is good, that, that I think we are to love. I mean, the world that God has created is a beautiful thing. I grew up in church singing, this is my father's world, and to my listening ear, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I mean, you think about the world that he's created, the beauty of it all, the, the creativity, the magnitude of it. I mean, even in the Genesis creation accounts, God has kind of this repeated refrain. He'll create something and he goes, you know, that's good. And then the next day he creates something else and goes, uh-huh, it is good. I mean, he just says every time he creates something, it is good. And someone pushed back, well, that was the created world in its perfect form. That was before the fall and that was before the curse. That's when it was good. It's no longer good. Well, let me push back on that one a little bit. Because again, throughout scripture, you see this, the beauty of what God has created. Psalm 8, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, you have set your glory above the heavens. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've set in place. You know, like this beautiful world that you've created. And it's not just the world out there. He starts talking about, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And yet you crowned him with glory and honor. That, that God still seems, even after the fall, still seems to say, say that this world is a beautiful thing. And even those inhabitants of the world. Or as many of you know, one of my favorite passages out of Psalm 19. That the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, and night after night, they display his, his glory. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world, that, that this world that God has created, the cosmos and all that's in it, it just screams out his glory. It shows his goodness. When you begin to see the magnitude of the macro universe and the complexity of the microscopic and the fine-tuning of all of it, it, it it's mind-boggling what God has done. 
Isaiah 40, when it says he marks out the heavens with a span of his hands, and each night he calls out the stars one by one and calls them by name so that none of them are missing. He holds it all together. Or that familiar one out of Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's in the old school and the fullness thereof, whatever that means. All of this earth is God's. And it's not just this, this created world that, that, that hasn't rebelled. It's even the inhabitants of the world, even those that have rebelled. That's why God loved that he would send his son. In Psalm 145, where it says that, that he, he satisfies the desires of every living thing. And that the Lord is good, good to all, it says. Good to all and has compassion on all he has made. That God's goodness, his greatness, and his grace for his world and the inhabitants. I mean, and when Jesus would say that the Father is just good, he makes the, the sun to shine on the good and the wicked. He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. We're called in, in 2 Corinthians where it says that Christ's love compels us. As we will see later in 1 John, if we don't have love for the inhabitants of this earth, the love of the Father is not. And so there is a love for this world that we are to have. But where is this love of the world that we're not supposed to have, this world that we're supposed to hate, that John speaks of in, in chapter 2 here of 1 John? And I think that world is different. When he speaks of that world, it's the sense of the, the value system of this world. The thinking, the attitudes, uh, the mindset, the, the mentality, the philosophy, the, the perspective, the priorities, the passions of this world. These things that stand against and oppose our God and his values, his way, his word, his will. The things that will draw us away from this relationship with God, this fellowship with him, the one who loved us so much that he would send his son as an atoning sacrifice, the one that we, we, um, we find our completion in. That is the love of the world that we are to avoid. In fact, we see this throughout scripture. The, the warnings in Psalm 1, when it says, blessed is the one who does not, does not, walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. It says, don't go with the advice of the world. Don't follow that. That is not the path to blessings. And don't go along the way with, with living the way that everyone else does. And don't sit in this, this mocking, scoffing at the things of God. You know, rather it says, you know, his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night and he becomes like a, river, a tree planted by streams of water. Or in Romans chapter 12 where it says, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns, the patterns of this world, the mindset, the perspective, the priorities, the thinking, the way, all of that mentality of the world. Don't be conformed to that. I like how J.B. Phillips said it. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. So John says, listen, beloved, don't love the world or anything in it in its value system. Let's go back to that verse. Verse 15 says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there's this contrast, the love of the world and the love of the Father. And if we talk about that love, which is an ongoing theme in this book, we begin to see that he's talking about the competition for our affection. 
the competition for the, the love of our hearts. As we've seen another theme, and we've seen this every week for the last four weeks, I believe, is this idea of fellowship with God. Not just this fearful worshiping of a deity far out. The doing life together, this unity, this, this intimacy, this love, this relationship that we have, the fellowship with the Father. And that there are these things that, that, will, that will try to, to take our affections from us the affections to the Father from us. And when we start talking about this, it's not just that, that it's our response to his love, that's the key thing, but it's also in understanding that God knows if our heart's affections are for anything in this world, those things will not last. And they will not satisfy. And they will not fulfill and they will not complete us. This is a warning for our own good. Uh, Blaise Pascal, mathematician, theologian, philosopher. He said this, he said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of everyone that can never be filled with, any created, uh, with anything in creation. Only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. That the way that God has created us, he put this space within us, within our soul, within our heart, that, that will always be yawning, longing, hungering for something. And there's only one thing that will ever fully satisfy that. And we try to fill it with all kinds of other things. But it will leave us wanting. There's only one thing. And that is when our heart's affection is for our Heavenly Father. So when, when God gives the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shalt not, and Moses, and all the, up on the Mount Sinai, and all that, when he gives the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before you. Don't make any idols or any graven images. And we can say, oh, you know, God wants us to only worship him. And we can start thinking, boy, that's pretty self-centered of God, isn't it? I mean, what has he got a low self-esteem, and if we go off and worship some Baal, then he's going to have his, his feelings hurt, is that it? And they, he's kind of this insecure little deity that's got to make sure that we do this or he's going to, that, that's not it at all. Listen, I, I want to just say this. If you never give another nod to God, if you never love him at all in your life, it doesn't change. He does not need my love. He does not need our love. We need this. He did this because he knew the way that we were created, that we would have our hearts go after things of this world that would not satisfy, that would not complete, that would not, would not really fulfill what we were created to be. When he gives that command, it's not about him, it's about us. St. Augustine said these words. He said, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So John says, listen, my beloved, my congregation, the people that I love, I want the best for you. Don't love this world or anything in it. Let's move on, verse 16. He says this, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now this is an interesting verse. You know, these things, and then there's this list of these three things. Personally, that's out of the NIV. Personally, this is one of those times where I kind of like the old King James or the authorized version because it's just a little more simplified. In that, it says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 
The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the things that buy for our attention. These are the things that, long, that draw for our affection. These are the things that will distract us from God, distance us from God, and detract us from the life that he has called us to live. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, Rick Warren, when he was talking about this, Rick Warren likes to alliterate everything, which is always fun for guys like me. But he, he summarized it this way. This is classic Rick Warren. He says, it's, it's the passion, the possessions, and the position. The passion, this, this lust of the flesh. And we always think lust of the flesh must be sexual. Yes, that is. But that's not exclusively it. It's these passions of our cravings of our, of our physical being, uh, the appetites, the physical appetites that we have. Those things. And then the possessions that... You know, the, the lust of the eyes, the things that we see, the material things that we long for, the materialism, and, and, and we've got to have that, and we, it's newer, and it's faster, or it's smaller, it's bigger, it's shinier, it's whatever it is, and, and it's that, the things that we can have. And then the pride of life, this, the position of our, of our power, of maybe of our status, of our, of our ego, uh, these three things. And it's these three things that the enemy will use to lure us away from our number one affection, which is God. I think it's safe to say, anyone listening to me today, if the devil showed up to you face to face and said, hey, I'm here to steal your soul, I would like for you to become an atheist or at least a Satan worshiper and then do evil and cruel things to humanity and small animals. Most would say, devil, go down to Georgia if you're looking for a soul to steal. So you know, just, I'm not going to buy that. He's way more subtle. It's not going to come up and say, I want you to be an atheist. There are going to be things he says, I just want to kind of draw your eyes away from God. I want to draw your heart away from God. I want to draw your affections towards some other things. Let me illustrate it this way. My brother and I were growing up. We loved to fish. We fished a lot. We didn't catch a lot. We went fishing. We didn't go catching. We fished a lot. And we had our, our Zebco uh, rod and reel combo, and we had our tackle box, and in our tackle box we had all kinds of stuff, and we'd rearrange and all that. We loved that stuff. And sometimes as a little kid, just looking at cool stuff in the tackle box was enough, especially for me. And we had all this stuff in the tackle box, but in our tackle box, we had our three favorite lures. These were the go-tos. There was a MEP spinner, little MEP spinner, there was a thing called a super duper, which looked a little bit like a hairbreadth that our sister had, but it wasn't. And then there was a, a daredevil spoon that was red with a little white stripe on the back, small one. Those were our three go-to lures. These were our favorite lures. And one of the things that made these lures so effective is not just the, the, the attraction they were to the fish, but all three of them had on the back of it, not a hook, a treble hook, a three-pronged hook which made it so effective for a fish that might just kind of hit it from whatever angle. These were our favorite go-tos. Now, if we went under the water and said, hey, fish, we want to kill you and fry you, not going to be very effective. However, if there was something that could lure them away, could attract their attention, could appeal to their their passions, to their desire, to their hunger, and then with their treble hook, get them. This, in this verse, is the lure and the treble hook that the enemy has always used. It's his three-pronged approach to drawing our affections away from God. All throughout human, 
Let me illustrate this. God creates a perfect world, perfect people, perfect setting. There's Adam, there's Eve, there's the whole garden, fellowship with God, every single day, walking with God is wonderful. And then the enemy comes along and begins to speak to Eve, begins to plant some questions and doubts in her minds like, did God really say this? And you know what, if God, God knows that if you ate that, you would be like him. And then look, look at this. This whole passion is the cravings and the, the, the appetites of the flesh. This, the eyes, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the position. Look at this three-pronged treble hook that the enemy uses in the garden. Genesis chapter three, verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, mm, physical appetite, physical craving, good for food, and pleasing to the eye, the lust of the eye, looks good, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. I can be like God. I can have a position. This my, appeals to my ego. She took some and ate it, and he set the hook. Got her. Trouble hook. All three of them. And from that day until this, all throughout human history, it's the same treble hook that hooks us. Now, here's the good news for us. It's the same treble hook. So we know that. I mean, what does it say in 1 Corinthians 10? No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. Why? Because there's only three hooks. It's common. If we know that, we can know what to look out for. It's common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. Resist the devil, it says in James, and he will flee from you. It's understanding. It's the same treble hook that he was using in the garden that he uses in our life to try and draw our attention and our affection away from our heavenly father. But we don't have to bite. Let me give you another example of one who had the same treble hook but didn't bite. Moses, found in Hebrews chapter 11. Watch this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's the position. That's the ego. That's the status. That's, that's this pride of life. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. That's these physical cravings, these physical desires, these physical appetites for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, the lust of the eyes, the possessions, the material things. And there was a lot in the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He had a perspective. The trouble hook was trolled in front of him, but he didn't bite. We don't have to bite. And if we can understand this, it's the same thing he's been using throughout human history. It's the same thing he will use to try and lure us away. And he is so unoriginal. He even tries the same treble hook with Jesus. Like, that's going to work. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He's hungry. He's fasted for 40 days. What's the first treble? What's the first prong that's of the temptation? Turn these stones into bread. Physical craving, physical appetite, physical you know, desire. He takes him and he says, I want to show you all of the splendors of all the kingdoms of the world, and it can all be yours. This whole thing of, of your possessions is the lust of the eyes. You can own this. It can be yours. It's materialism. And twice in these temptations, he says to them, if 
You are the son of God. Ego, position, power, are you really? And he tries to, to get him with the same treble hook, and Jesus doesn't bite. See, this is good news for us, because if we know the tactics of our enemy, then we can recognize those things, and we can avoid those. Now, some people, this is where it's misunderstood, and some people then will say, well, okay, well then, if passions and possessions and position is wrong, then we ought to avoid all of it, throw everything, give everything away, you know, deny ourselves everything and never have any ambition. Okay, that's a little bit extreme. But some people do that to this ascetic life, and this has been going on as well for a lot of years. First Timothy chapter four says, they... They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good. And James says, and every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father. So where's the balance in this? Where's the sweet spot in this of not saying, well, you know, I'll, I'll never eat again. <laughs> I'll never own anything and I'll never, I'll never try to have any influence. Or this other side. Keller puts it this way. He says it's when we are making good things into ultimate things. That's where it becomes a problem. God has given us good things, but they've got to be used in their proper, proper setting, proper uh, you know, perspective. Because so often we make those good things and we turn them into ultimate things, and then they get into more idolatry and begin to come, become too important to us. Years ago, Richard Foster wrote a book called um, Power, Sex, and Money, which is these three things. And he's not anti-power, anti-sex, or anti-money. He's just saying we have to have these things in the right perspective. They cannot become our gods. I mean, you think about our physical cravings and, and desires. Is eating wrong? No. You don't eat, you die. Eating is good. In fact, the fact that God gave us multiple flavors and textures to enjoy and to nourish our bodies, that's a good thing. But we eat to live. We don't live to eat. When that becomes a good thing, becomes the ultimate thing, that's bad. Gluttony. That's horrible. Sex is a gift from God. Listen, if no one ever had sex, none of us would be here. And it's a gift from God for a man and a woman in a monogamous marital covenant but when that becomes, a, from a good thing, becomes the ultimate thing, it messes up lives and relationships and mindsets and the way we look at people, it becomes bad. Leisure, rest. God created the Sabbath. It, it's healthy rhythms. But when that becomes our object of life, the sloth and the laziness, that, that is not a good thing. Good things become ultimate, then they become bad. Money is not bad. The love of money is the root of all evil. Not money is the root of all evil. The love of money, that's when a good thing, a tool. If we didn't have money, the, the kind of humanitarian efforts that we could, couldn't do, the kind of ministry efforts we couldn't do, money's not bad. It's the love of money. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, the stuff that God has blessed you with, to be able to use that to encourage others and bless, bless others and enjoy life, it's a good thing. But if it becomes your, your centerpiece for life, you've missed it altogether. Your job, the position, your influence, the power to use that to help others, to use that to bring about the kingdom of God, those are good things. But if that becomes your centerpiece and your focus of life, then it becomes your God and it has lured you away. Solomon, Solomon, these three, the, you know, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the, and the pride of life. Solomon, you read Ecclesiastes, he just said, I'm going to test this theory out. 
I mean, to the full nth degree. And he does. I mean, he just, read it for yourself. He just denied himself nothing. And at the end of it all, he said, you know what? It's like chasing the wind. It's this vanity. It's this, it leaves me wanting. It didn't really fulfill or satisfy. It didn't deliver what it seemed to promise. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, he says, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, and that is the whole duty of a man. All right, we gotta get on. Verse 17. We are gonna make it through this, aren't we? Oh, good, okay. Verse 17 says this. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Two contrasts here. The desires of the world and the will of God. And those two things stand in stark contrast against each other. And then he says, one of them is temporary, but one of them is eternal. He says, if we can begin to understand this, we begin to see, okay, I see what's going on here. I I can see, you know, they pull back the curtain. I see what the wizard's doing here. I know what's happening. I, I see the trouble hook. I see this goes against what God's word and God's will and God's way is. And, and this isn't gonna last. And I see what God, it's gaining this eternal perspective, living with an eternal perspective, living knowing that it's not just about today and it's not just about our life here on this earth. Yesterday morning, this room was completely packed, completely packed. And the loft had another 200 people in the overflow. A very, very emotional time. As we had a memorial service for a 19 and a half year old young man who lost his battle with cancer, a Jude Veltkamp. And in those moments, it's a reminder of our own mortality. Life is fragile, there's no guarantees. And if we only live for today, We are selling ourselves short and we'll miss out on what God has for us. That's why in in, in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. He says, you go after the, the desires of this world, they'll fulfill what you want for a while, but they're passing away. But you do the will of God, that will lead to life and eternal life. My friend Bill Giovanetti, he's a pastor in Redding, California, he said, there is nothing good for me outside of the will of God. Some of you might push back on that. No, 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 no. Our God who knows all things, who knows you, who knows the future, who created life, who wants the very best for you, who loves the very best, who would not even spare his own son, He has a will for you and for me. And there is nothing good for us outside of that will. Um, Not right now, because I'm almost done, seriously, but maybe uh, if the game gets boring today or you have some spare time this week, read Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is an illustration of what we've just been talking about. I'll, I'll just kind of summarize it. The psalmist starts a psalm And he starts talking about how he's frustrated 
Because as he looks out on the world and the people of this world, he sees that they're going after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you know what? They're doing great. I mean, they are healthy, wealthy, prosperous. They're enjoying life. They are self-centered. They don't care about anybody else. They're popular. They're carefree. And he, and he gives this point. He says, and, I, and I'm trying, this is my paraphrase, I'm trying to keep a pure heart and do the will of God, and I'm, the, I'm living in a struggle bus. I mean, this is just rough. And it seems like everyone else is going for all these other things, everything the world has to offer, all this stuff. They're doing great. And, and look at my life. And God, and, and, and he's struggling with all of this. So he says this in verse 15 of of Psalm 73. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. It was troubling to me. I I didn't get it. I didn't like it. I was frustrated. I'm thinking, why am I doing all this? Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destination. When I quit looking at everybody else, when I quit looking at the world, when I quit looking at the desires, when I quit looking at all the people who were fulfilling the the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and I stopped and I came into God's presence, when I got a perspective from God, and then I began to realize what lasts and what doesn't, what's most important and what isn't. And I see that all the things that they have are gonna be very short-lived. Let me just pause right here for a second. You hear us say all the time, we want you to be in God's word daily. We want you to read God's word. We want you to study God's word. We want you to apply God's word. The reason is this, that we are in the the academy of this world all day, every day. We are in the catechism of the things of this world every day. Voices, images that call us, go after the lust of the flesh. You won't be full until you have the lust of the eyes. You've gotta have the pride of life in this position. And we are bombarded with that in the media, in our friends, in our world. And somewhere we have to come back like he did to the presence of God and say, this is God's word, this is God's will, this is the way to the life that I've created, been created to live. And can I push one more? And, and this is gonna sound self-serving. Hear me all the way out. This is why I believe it is so absolutely important that we gather together at least once a week to recalibrate and refocus our perspective that Jesus is the one to be worshiped, his word is the one to be listened to, his will is the way to be followed because all week long we're hearing every other message to go after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and somewhere like the psalmist said, we have to come back into the presence of God and say, oh, that's right, this is how I'm supposed to live. This is God's way. That's why this is so important. And listen, I'm not just trying to fill the room here. If it's not Cornwall, go to a church that lifts up the name of Jesus and preaches the word of God so that you can live with the proper perspective. And it's not just that those things are falling away. He says this, oh yeah, and this, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. You know, just a little while ago, we sang these words. There is nothing better than you. Nothing better than you. Circle back around to where we started. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And let me repeat what I've been saying each week. This isn't just about you can't do this and you have to do this and behavior modification. It's beyond behavior. It's love, it's this fellowship with the Father. This life and the light and the love that we have. And all the rest of this stuff, 
the things of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of the life, they vie for our affections, they distract us from our calling, and they promise a life that they can never fulfill. And John just wants to warn his, his loved, beloved congregation and us, that's not the world to love. Solomon said these words in Proverbs, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So let me throw this out for you as a challenge. First of all, this value system of the world, the antidote towards that is the word of God, by the way. That's why it's so important in our life. But maybe an exercise would be to be honest with yourself and ask, in this treble hook, this three-pronged approach that the enemy has used for all of human history and will use on us, which of these am I most susceptible to? The lust of the flesh, the physical cravings and the desires that are not necessarily bad but can be taken to an ultimate level. The lust of the eyes, the possessions, the materialism. If I just drove that, if I just lived this, I've just had that, if I just would, is that it? The pride of life, our ego, our status, what people thought of us, people pleasing, power, influence. Which one am I most susceptible to? And then, you know, there, there are ways that we battle that. For the cravings and the desires of the flesh, we just did a 21 days of prayer and fasting. The whole idea of fasting is saying no to the flesh so that we can fill up with more of God. The whole materialism, you know what will break the back of greed and materialism faster than anything else? Generosity. It's to give, sacrificially, obediently. And this whole thing of pride and ego and my power and position, when we genuinely, honestly worship our great God and look into his incredible world that he's created, there is an adequate smallness and a disproportionate love from the Father that brings about a humility that I don't have to be people pleasers. I am pleasing in the eyes of God. My identity is who I am in him. I don't need positions and ego. And whatever he gives me, I will use for his glory and to help others out to live the life that we've been created to live. All right, now I've gone too long, so I'll stop here. But that would be my challenge. Just identify, it's the same treble hook. It's gonna happen. It's gonna look enticing. It's gonna happen today in the commercials of the Super Bowl. I need Doritos. I must drive a Lexus. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> that one's for free. <laughs> Identify those things and guard your heart so that it is filled with the affection for our Heavenly Father.